Chapter 2 Love's Labor 1 I have seen your statues, Lady Love, and oft wondered why divine beauty sits in council. What do doves know of savage war? Mortal man, little boy, O oh sweet summer child, love does not sit in council. Love, my love, rules all. I am the cyclic throes of blissful end, the tears that bring in life, the last words on the lips of dying men. Life, not love, is the lie. Your bonds of blood, of hope and choice is the yarn I weave into cloth, and if my whim turns into a spark, just ask that blind poet of yours. Millennia before the gods and council, the earth blessed her son, Time, with a scythe. Time then used this, the first weapon, to dismember his father, the sky. When the remains of the sky fell into the oceans, love emerged from its frothy depths. The Greeks called her Aphrodite, she who rose from Aphros, the delicate form of the sparkling sea. For thousands of years, sculptors and artists have tried to paint her, to shave and hammer and chisel her visage onto the whitest of marble. Alessandro Botticelli painted her origins in his The Birth of Venus as late as the early Renaissance. But any representation would be a pale, watered-down approximation. For how would a mere man distill a thousand years of identity and worship into a hunk of stone? Such is the nature of the beauty Aphrodite personifies. It is divine. It has existed since before the dawn of the world as even the gods know it. If Helen was the most beautiful on earth, Aphrodite was beauty. The concept of beauty, the ideals of grace and the expectation and fantasies of perfection that humans have in their heads. She exists in the proud smile you give yourself in the mirror and in the flutter of your heart as someone catches your eye. She is also the breath that you hold to tuck your tummy and the frenzied hand guiding brushes to your face intending to conceal, to minimize, to highlight and maximize. She is innocence and insecurity, and she definitely cannot be summarized with one story or one name. She was called Aphrodite Urania, divine beauty, predating the gods, the remnant of something primal and beyond comprehension. She is Aphrodite Pandemos, of all, of the people, of simple lives and contentment. And then she is Aphrodite Arya, of frenzy. This Aphrodite was a goddess of war, of the love of war, of the love that results in war and the love that ends war. This Aphrodite played games with the strings of fate and orchestrated the rise and fall of civilizations. It is her that I would urge you to think of as you hear this, the next chapter in the story of Troy. Our story today begins with a sea goddess in chains. Her name was Thetis, and she was one of the fifty Nereid children of the old sea god Nereus. She was exquisite, as a full moon rising from the pearlescent ocean in the night. So obviously, her beauty caught the attention of both Zeus, Lord of the Skies, and his brother Poseidon, Earthshaker, Stormbringer, and Lord of the Seas. But Thetis was the victim of a prophecy. The fates had decreed that she would bear a son who was greater than his father. Now this was a problem, 
for the Olympian throne has a long history of being usurped by the son of the previous king. Take Zeus's father Cronos, for example. He was so afraid of this that he ate his children. Apart from this being extremely gross and just weird, it also didn't help him, because Zeus chopped him up with a scythe anyway and promptly assumed his position. The solution that Zeus came up with to this problem was that all Thetis had to do was bear the child of a man who couldn't possibly compete for the throne. So he ordered her to marry a mortal king, whose child couldn't challenge the Olympian throne on accounts of being, you know, mortal. According to classical mythology, the wedding of Thetis and Peleus was celebrated on Mount Pelion, outside the cave of the centaur Chiron. The gods descended from Olympus and beyond to attend the revels. Nymphs and spirits danced, Apollo played the lyre, and the muses sang. Everyone who was anyone was at that wedding, from the big twelve of the Olympians and the older gods to the lesser nature spirits. Basically what I'm saying is that Peleus had an Indian wedding. But unlike our weddings where we definitely invite that auntie everyone hates and suffer through her comments, Peleus didn't, and thus began the problem. The goddess who had not received an invitation was Eris, daughter of the night and goddess of strife and discord. So of course, she retaliated. Not rashly as any other gods might have, but slyly, the way conflict seeps in through the flaws in one's character. Her weapon? An apple. More specifically, a golden apple from the Garden of Twilight that she inscribed with the phrase to the fairest and tossed amidst the dancing deities. If you think that this was a lame, half-thought attempt at attribution, then you don't know the Greek gods at all. Hubris is a flaw the heroes inherited from their divine parents. It is only fatal to them because the gods cannot die. Greek philosophy is not that arrogance and vanity are inherently bad, but that only the gods can survive the price that it demands. Three of the most powerful goddesses of the Olympian pantheon laid claim to that apple. Hera the queen of the gods and symbol of marriage and family decked in peacock feathers, Athena, goddess of wisdom and battle strategy and patron deity to the Athenians, and Aphrodite, lady of the doves, the goddess of love and beauty and all things in between. Now they had to be judged. Who in fact was the fairest of them all? There was no magic mirror on Mount Pelion. There was only Zeus and he would not be so stupid as to make that decision himself. Instead, he found a scapegoat, the mortal Alexandros, better known today as Paris, who was either the hero of this entire tale or the coward who stole another man's wife and burnt two kingdoms to the ground, depending on how you look at it. Paris was the second son of King Priam and Queen Hecuba of Troy. In the nights preceding his birth, Queen Hecuba dreamed that she had given birth to a flaming torch. The seer Asacus interpreted this to be a portent that the child would bring about the destruction of his homeland and would therefore have to be killed. In accordance with the seer's wishes, King Priam and Queen Hecuba ordered a servant Aegilus to take their newborn son to Mount Ida and leave him there at the mercy of the elements and the wild beasts. But death was not in the cards for the infant prince. For no matter how much you struggled against a prophecy, the inescapable pull of the threads of fate always bore it to fruition. When Aegilus returned four days later for the body of the child, he found him very much alive, having been nursed by a she-bear, 
standard Greek mythology, you know, mother's in absentia is not a problem anymore. Out of the kindness of his heart, Aegilus then adopted the boy, named him Paris, and raised him as his own. Paris grew up herding sheep on the verdant slopes of Mount Ida under the bright sun and warm summers that Western Asia is still known for. He was courageous and strong of body, and handsome in the way royals often are. He defended the flocks of sheep from robbers and thieves and thus earned the name Alexandros, meaning protector of the people. In the midst of his frolicking and sheep herding, a young Paris met the nymph Inone, and sure enough, the two fell in love. Paris took her to his home on Mount Ida and promised to love her forever, as lovers are oft wont to do. But Inone was wise in the ways of both prophecy and the healing arts. The god Apollo himself taught her to peer into the meandering paths of the future, and the titaness Rhea educated her on the herbs and bark, imbibing into her the secrets of health and wellness. So Inone knew of the future. She knew that her lover would leave her and that he would bring the dogs of war, ravenous and filthy, right to their paradise. In the Ovid, the celebrated seer Cassandra asks, What are you doing, Inone? Why commit seeds to sand? To mean, why give this man your time, your affections and yourself when you know it will not last? I suppose that this is the first variation of the question, if you knew your relationship was doomed from the start, would you commit? And I also suppose that love has a long history of making you stupid. This was the life that Paris had before the messenger god Hermes whisked him up to a glade on the peak of the mountain he called home, to judge a contest that the king of the gods himself was too cowardly to. This next part of the tale is called The Judgment of Paris. I mention the title because it is ironic. Paris is the one who judges the goddesses and decides who the fairest of them is, but in reality, he is the one being judged. As Paris brushed past the leaves and walked into the lake at the center of that glade, the three goddesses waited for him. Never before had a goddess wanted to impress a mortal man. They had always been worshipped. But now, they had to play to the vanity of this lowly shepherd. So, the three goddesses preened and posed for him. They whispered promises into his ear and pushed and prodded him, hoping to nudge him in their favor. The queen of the gods offered him untold wealth. You will rule all of Greece and Anatolia, Hera whispered to him. Athena offered him the destruction of Hellas, of Greece, the country she was a patron of, that she was sworn to protect. She also promised him excellence in every craft and proficiency of every weapon under the heavens. And Aphrodite, well, she looked deep into his eyes and showed him a palace across the sea, where a girl sat at a balcony, staring into the distance, her fiery hair blowing ever so slightly in the evening breeze. Pick me. She breathed. Pick me and she is yours. The most beautiful woman in the world is yours. And of course he did, as all eventually do, falling prey to love's treacherous ways. The tempter smiled, Hera and Athena swore revenge and divine retribution and they all disappeared, 
leaving Paris alone, now consumed only with the thoughts of this woman across the sea. Did his heart love till now? Forswear it, sight, for he never saw beauty till this night. As her lover walked back into their home late that night, glassy-eyed, mind miles away, Inone knew she had lost him, lost him for good. Before he left, still half-drunk on beauty he had no right to, Inone warned him. One day, she said to him, one day you will be wounded and dying in a war of your own making. Come to me then, for I am the only one who can save you. Despite his addled mind, Paris heard her then, for she spoke with the voice of someone who knew the future with a certainty no mortal could possess. But I do not think he believed her. He had the blessing of Aphrodite. He had the audacity, the arrogance, to believe that love cared for those within its grasp. Here is that word again, hubris. What prompted Paris to believe that he had the right to pass judgment on the beauty of a goddess? His utter confidence that a higher power had chosen him to be the only suitable candidate for this task. The moment he walked forward towards gods instead of turning tail and running as far away as possible, Troy had already fallen. Millions had died. In the years that followed, Paris competed in the games hosted by the King of Troy, where he bested his one brother, was almost killed by another, and finally claimed by his father as a prince. Thus claimed, he went back to the palace, living his rightful life as the Prince of Troy. Until finally, one day, he stood upon the prow of a ship with the Goddess of Love painted on its sails, headed on a diplomatic mission towards the white sands of the beaches of Sparta. In his head, he had already laid a claim to Helen who was a queen married to a powerful king and who did not even know of his existence. Or, in the words of creepy men everywhere, did not know of his existence yet. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bookbenders podcast. If you'd like to hear more, Follow me on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can see pictures and depictions of every chapter I post on my profile at The Bookbender with 8s in place of the Bs on Instagram, where I also post updates of future episodes. If you're interested in reading my original stories and poems, you can find them on Wattpad under the same handle. Until you hear me next, this is Pranav, hoping you have an amazing time.